The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing Cody Fajardo's ailing left knee. The Montreal Alouette's penalty problems. Duke Williams throwing a helmet at Shaq Richardson's head. Kahari Jones getting hired by the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And Andrew Harris making history. But first, you two were in Nova Scotia for this year's Touchdown Atlantic game in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. JC already wrote a great column about his overall impressions of the event, but JC, I would love to hear you tell our listeners more about your experience. What were your impressions from this year's Touchdown Atlantic, the first since 2019? I think there's two aspects to this, and and the first is a positive one. I went to Halifax with, you know, not really knowing what the appetite would be for the CFL, what the city was like. And I came away blown away by Halifax and really believing that the CFL should continue to look into a team there. I think one could work whether or not there's an existing CFL fan base there. It's a, a great community, a vibrant downtown, a place that I think could be incredibly successful with sort of that small city vibe that the CFL so thrives with. And then the touchdown Atlantic game itself was absolutely fantastic. You know, sellout crowd of just under 11,000 there. Tremendous atmosphere, almost a, an East Coast kitchen party out there in Wolfville, which was a, a bloody miracle based on how small that community is and how old the stadium was that they had to erect those temporary stands. And so kudos to the CFL on that point. But on the other side of it, I don't think we're getting that expansion that I want to see anytime soon based on some of the news that came out of this week. I mean, Justin Dunk, he had a conversation with the Halifax mayor, Mike Savage, where he essentially put on ice any hope of a CFL stadium in the near future, or at least public money going towards it, which is not what you want to hear because they need a facility in Halifax that's permanent, that's able to have sort of in that 20,000 plus range to be able to support a team. That doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. And then you have the owners of this proposed expansion team, the Atlantic Schoolers, Schoolers Sports and Entertainment, who don't even bother to show up to the event because they don't feel confident enough making public statements about the state of expansion at this stage even though they were on all the original marketing material for the event, the CFL said it was going to be co-hosted by the Atlantic Schooners. Well, they had to scrub that at the last minute because the Schooners never showed. So to me, that was a big faux pas and a little bit troubling for the future of expansion. I hope it happens. I think it would be successful, but we're looking in the long term, not the short term here. Let's start with all the positives here from Touchdown Atlantic. All right. First of all, the CFL did a wonderful job of turning Raymond Field into a spot fit for a professional football game. We got to remember the town of Wolfville has a population just over 5,000 
and there was well over 10,000. I think some people estimated even close to 11 or 12 or maybe even more people that traveled to the city to experience a game day atmosphere. And obviously a huge number of those were at the game. So they overtook the city of Wolfville there. The CFL spent three weeks setting up the temporary stands and everything that comes along with putting on a professional game, like the broadcast lines and all those types of things. We saw the TSN panel was based there in Wolfville. So the CFL did a top-notch job in that respect of putting on a professional event. Shoutout goes out to Lucas Barrett, the league's personnel man who helped us out in a number of ways. Also, Chris Belenovich from the Argos, Ariel Zer from the Riders, their media relations staff. You know, I had someone say on Twitter, oh, great, you got a media pass and you got some free food. Well, that's not what it's about. I don't even eat the media food most of the time, as I think you guys know, JC, at least now does. But it's about communication because at these types of events, there's a lot of moving parts. For example, the Rough Riders practice on the walkthrough day was originally scheduled to be in Wolfville. But it ended up being at Husky Stadium on the campus of St. Mary's University. It even got shifted back a day. So lots of communication. They were on point, helped us get where we needed to go. So that needs to be said first and foremost. The other positive for the league is it seems like there is an appetite there for CFL football in Halifax. The city is over 400,000 people. It's definitely the hub of Atlantic Canada. Now, I don't want people from Moncton or elsewhere sort of throwing stones my way when I say that, but I think that's just the honest truth. And you could sense a buzz in the city, especially on Friday night at Grand Parade, which is just outside City Hall in there, Mike Savage's office. There was a setup where there was a concert going on. There was lots of people congregating, having a wonderful time. There were some activations from the CFL perspective as well. So that got it going and then carried it into Saturday. And you could see, yes, there was obviously a lot of Rough Riders jerseys there, but Hodge, honestly, it stuck out to me. There's a bunch of Winnipeg Blue Bombers jerseys as well. And I think every CFL team probably was represented in terms of a fan wearing their jersey. And we spoke to a handful of locals who were kind of on both sides. There were some fans that wanted to see a CFL team there. There were some fans that didn't even know there was a CFL game there at all, but they felt like getting a team could be cool. And that brings me to the reality of the expansion situation. Randy Ambrosia is out here all but guaranteeing expansion and is eyeing obviously the East Coast, but Savage gave us the real deal in terms of from his perspective. There's not going to be a CFL-specific stadium that seats 30-plus thousand or even 25,000 fans. That's just not on the table. We're essentially exactly Savage's words. If the CFL wants to look at a modified approach, not exactly similar, but something along the lines of the Halifax Wanderers of the Canadian Premier League has done, that would be possible. JC and I made a point to go visit the Wanderers grounds as they're called there. I think you can fit about seven or 8,000 fans. Savage was saying they sell out all the time. I believe Derek Martin is the owner there, had an idea to put this stadium in what's called the Halifax Common Area. Savage referred to it as their central park in Halifax. It's obviously not as big as Central Park in New York, but you can see the green space in the city. And the fact that they probably wouldn't want to use a chunk of that space to take up a CFL stadium and some of the parking that would be around it. But if the CFL can get on the wavelength of Mayor Savage, because I think that's really going to be the key in terms of getting public funds, then there's a possibility in the future for a modified venue there. Because Savage said, hey, we feel like we have the population to support a CFL team. We would like to have a CFL team. He feels like the corporate dollars would be there in the city to support a CFL team. We all know how important those are. But it's about the league not forcing themselves on Halifax, but understanding what Halifax needs in terms of that stadium piece to get a team there. It's not going to be as big, but Savage even referred to it, guys, and we've seen it throughout the league, that more and more you're seeing the younger generation not wanting to sit into a seat, but they want to be in a party zone. So I think that's something that in the future that could be looked at. I don't want to close the door on expansion there at all, but they need to come around to the thinking of viewing it from Halifax's perspective, and especially Savage, because he's been in office so much there, guys. And the one 
intriguing note that I heard after my sit down with Mayor Savage in his beautiful office there at the corner right at Grand Parade was that there are some discussions going on with St. Mary's University at least looking at the possibility of upgrading their football stadium and turning that into a stadium that potentially a team such as the Atlantic Schooners could use. It's still a long way away from gaining any real traction and they would need public funds to get it done, but at least there's discussion about it. So I'm going to put you guys on the spot because I think the the ultimate story here and and if you want all the details about the parties, all all the details about the live performances, I'd encourage you to check out JC's piece. Reading JC's piece made me feel like I had been in Wolfville and Halifax for this event, which which was fantastic. That's to me the sign of the best piece was when the reader feels like they were there. That's 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 a ten out of ten piece of of journalism right there. Uh, but the thing I want to ask, everybody's talking about expansion. So I'm going to lay out a timeline of two years, a timeline of five years, and a timeline of 10 years. And I want you to guys to give me a percentage chance. What is the odds, a percentage, that we're going to have a team in the Maritimes, a CFL team full-time in two years on a five-year timeline and a 10-year timeline? JC, we'll start with you. Two years, I think it's about 0%, Hodge. I really do. I don't think, based on the appetite that Mayor Savage um, said is there for a stadium and the time it would take to construct one, that's just not happening in the next two years. Now, five years, maybe a 50% chance. Because I I am optimistic that there is an appetite for it in the city, and I'd like to see it happen. I think it's ridiculous that it hasn't happened already because of, what that city can be. And I think it would be well supported. You look at the Wanderers and they sell out every week. They're the top of the premier league in terms of attendance. They double the next team, despite playing in a stadium. That's, you know, a, a fraction of the size of, of some of these other teams that have to play in big venues. And then you've got St. Mary's. That's also looking for, you know, a better place to play. There are teams in that city that could benefit from a stadium. And all it takes is a little cooperation between all of them to band together and agree on sort of a multi-use facility that the city can get full value out of. I think if you can find that, you find the right location, hopefully to me somewhere near that commons area, because it's absolutely fantastic. That would be, ideal so i'll put it 50 percent on the five years and hopefully it moves in that direction and then on 10 years i think ultimately in that five to ten that's probably where the best movement happens uh i'm not gonna put it at 100 uh, i won't even put it at 90 but i'll say 80 percent because i really do think that expansion to 10 teams is a necessity for the cfl not just from all the scheduling standpoints and all those things you'll hear Ambrose or other people around the league talk about in terms of being able to move the schedule up or not having all these funky bye weeks and having two balanced divisions. To me, the bigger thing is the CFL is looking for ways to grow, right? Growth of revenue. And they've done some crazy things to do it. You know, they're looking overseas for the global stuff and trying to see what there is out there for a US TV deal and all these different options. And I don't think there's a whole lot of extra money sitting around there. This is not a a league that is ever going to be flush with cash. It's not going to be the moneymaker that the NFL is. But the one way that you can guarantee significant growth is by adding another market. And right now there is a market in this country that is underserved, that has shown that they support basically every sports team that comes through there in large numbers, and you can be the biggest show in town. To me, that's a big deal for the CFL. It's something that they absolutely have to do. So if they can't get it done within 10 years, to me, that is a massive, massive failure. I think there's a little bit of recency bias with JC because he liked the seafood out there too much in terms of his last two percentages, <laughs> 50 and 80%. The next two years, it's 0%, to be quite honest. Mayor Savage told me that they're doing a master plan for the Halifax Common Area within the next year that 
really had nothing to do with the CFL. He was just explaining what they're doing and looking at with that area. And the CFL has not been talked about in that plan at all. Could they get in this discussion? It's possible, but you're not going to build a stadium from scratch in two years. So I just don't see it in two years. That's definitely 0%. As for five years, they're going to have to play the way that Halifax wants to in terms of getting public funds and being a multi-use facility. So that's why this percentage is going to be low, 10 to 15% range in the next five years. And outside of that, I don't even think I would go higher than 30% for 10 years because everybody's talked about it for so long out East. we got to remember, it's been about a decade and Savage referred to it since Mark Cohan got really hot and bothered about wanting to put a team out there and got touchdown Atlantic going way back. I believe it was in 2012, or that's at least when Savage referred to some of his discussions with Kohan. We got to remember that in 2014, Savage had some comments about wanting a CFL team there, and he's been open and honest about that. But that's why the percentages are low for me, because I think there's some recency bias with JC's answers, but also because the CFL in the past, and this hopefully changes in the future, has shown they want to play their way or it's the highway. Now, some of that was the old Board of Governors way and certainly barely David Braley, God rest his soul, was one of those people that had to have it his way. But if they can look at it and conform to what Halifax wants, then I think that's going to be the quickest way to getting a stadium there. And that's really where the discussion starts and ends. If you can get a stadium, then you can start the discussion. But if there's no stadium, then it completely ends. As much as everybody wants to see it, you have to play in this political sandbox. And it starts with Seth. All right. Are we done with Touchdown Atlantic? JC, is there anything else you want to add? Well, I, I'd simply say I, I am optimistic just because I want a team there so bad. Um, ultimately, the thing that, that strikes me is I, I think it's short-term thinking both from the league and from the city that has hurt this because the league, as you said, has not been willing to, to do the compromises to, to make the actions that were necessary to make this stuff happen. But also from the city perspective, I don't understand why you wouldn't want a facility that could host a professional level event in your city, because I get the economic standpoint when it comes to building new stadiums in cities with existing facilities and how that doesn't add much um, to your economy just generally. But for a city like Halifax, that doesn't have anything similar to what a CFL style venue would bring. And, and the amount of teams that I could, foresee using that facility the the openings to the possibility of of international events especially out there on the east coast when you're so much closer to european or british times you look at the you know things like the toronto arrows and traveling rugby teams that are crossing the atlantic well something like that could absolutely work in halifax too and they'd need a facility so if you can find a place where a cfl team could coexist with the wanderers with you know college teams with you know local events with all sorts of different things i think it would be a great benefit to the city and unfortunately i just don't think anyone wants to be the one to have to cash or who, who to have to write the the check to make it happen but when you're coming out of an economic downturn you'd think you'd want to invest in big infrastructure projects that's sort of traditionally been the logical thing and i'm no economist but every by any stretch but i i I know uh, FDR's New Deal, and that's sort of the the idea is you want to build big infrastructure in those economic downturns. To me, a stadium seems like something that should be on the table right now, and unfortunately it's not because people are worried about the optics. And it makes sense when you're coming out of a pandemic and still dealing with the financial ramifications of that. And also Savage pointed to homelessness and affordable housing. Those are real life issues and not something that you're just going to cast aside for building a CFL stadium. So from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, Savage did vote yes for that conditional 20 million in 2019. That vote went through, it should be said. But part of the reasons why Savage's perspective have changed on that is because of the pandemic, because of 
homelessness because of wanting to have affordable housing in the area and also because of the construction costs. They've gone way up. So that proposed stadium that Anthony LeBlanc brought forward at the time when he was with SSC, we should say he's now the president of business operations of the Ottawa Centers. And I think he's a key piece missing from this equation that clearly was able to bridge the CFL and at least the city of Halifax and bring them together on some of their ideas. And that stadium project he proposed was in and around 100 million, 110 million. And they were going to get 20 million from the city if everything happened to go through. But the kicker there was, I don't think people really talked about it at the time, the province wasn't about to really look at it seriously. And then the pandemic hit, there was a CFL season that was canceled. And obviously there was more focus on the league just sustaining itself. So what I would like to see from the league's perspective is, Grow your businesses elsewhere. The ownership with Gary Stern in Montreal seems like it should be a positive. Amar Doman, obviously, in BC, is seeming like he's got some fresh ideas. So if you can bring some of those ideas into the room and present them to the city of Halifax, I think it would be great. The other important note I think that we should say is that Savage said if someone came to him with all private funding for a stadium, then he would be, I believe, what was his wording? Silly or stupid to say no. So <laughs> there is a pathway to get a stadium. If there's an investor that really believes in a stadium project out there or a CFL team in Atlantic Canada or JC, as you mentioned, the other various events that you could hold at a stadium and derive some revenue off that to go back to that potential private investor, then that's one way it's going to be possible. But they don't want to build it outside the city. Savage made that very clear. It's off the table. So that's why you need to play nice in this proverbial sandbox with the politicians at play because they want to put it in a smart area, which I absolutely think is the right move. Downtown Halifax was bumping pretty much all the nights that we were out. JC, it wasn't necessarily like a major city in Toronto earlier in the week, but Friday and Saturday night, it was packed with a lot of young people and the CFL could hit that key demographic that they so dearly want. Riders franchise quarterback Cody Fajardo suffered, quote, a major setback, close quote, to his left knee following a sack from Sean Oakman in the touchdown Atlantic game. Fajardo started wearing a brace on his knee weeks ago and was originally projected to have it off by now, though the injury hasn't healed as quickly as originally hoped. How big of a deal is this knee issue for Fajardo and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders? To me, this is almost a season-defining issue. This this is the biggest issue facing this team at the moment, which is saying something considering some of the extracurriculars they've had <laughs> from players like Garrett Marino and Duke Williams, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show. Uh, Cody Fajardo you know, is Saskatchewan's only proven quarterback on any level. They had Isaac Harker there the last couple of years who started a few games. He's no longer with the team. Mason Fine had a great career at the University of North Texas, but he has yet to start a CFL game. I think we will. We don't know that yet, but I suspect that we will see him start this week um, in the, the second half of the home home against the Toronto Argonauts. He's only dressed for seven games. He's never started. Um, I ran the numbers. Cody Fajardo is currently rushing this season for 16 yards a game. He had 42 rushing yards in week one, but over the course of the season, that that production has plummeted. He has rushed for less than half the number of yards per game in 2022 as he did in 2021. And that just goes to show how limited he's been by the knee injury. Yes, the knee injury was exacerbated by the sack from Oakman. I know that a lot of Saskatchewan Rough Riders fans are out here saying that the Oakman hit is the exact same thing as the Garrett Marino hit, which it's not remotely. I, I do think that Oakman could have been flagged for roughing the passer, and I tweeted as such. It was not nearly as egregious. In fact, Cody looked like he was the one twisting his knee after Oakman grabbed around his ankle, Fajardo seemed to do a lot of the worst with that hit. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Riders do not have a proven backup. Cody, I think, has been left to languish too long. I think our boy Brandon McGuire hit this nail on the head when he said Cody should be sat now and maybe he should have been sat earlier because the injury has gotten worse as a result of him playing. And if a month ago you sit him a week and he's fine, now they've got two games ahead of their bye, and I think it's almost an inevitability at this point that you sit them for both because this is a team that's under a tremendous amount of pressure to win the Great Cup at home, and 
while missing Cody for two weeks could obviously limit your chances of doing so, you know it's going to kill it if he's out for the season because he keeps pushing this injury before it has had a proper chance to heal. What shocked me about this situation being in the press conference post game when he was talking about his knee is that our good friend from the Regina Leader Post, Murray McCormick, shot him a fastball. He said, is your career in jeopardy from this injury? And I expected, you know, that to be entirely dismissed, to be laughed at. And Fajardo said, we'll see. I don't know how many more shots to my knee I can take. So clearly he believes that this is an issue that's serious enough that it's potentially going to affect his career longevity. I was absolutely floored by that statement and even more shocked that if that is the case, how you keep him in the football game as head coach Craig Dickinson has. I mean, you've got to protect your face of the franchise. You cannot afford to learn him lose him long term as you've alluded to Hodge and right now he's a danger to himself and a danger to your team right now because he cannot move and every time he gets bumped on that like I don't I don't think that Oakman hit was particularly vicious by any stretch I only saw it live in the stadium and there wasn't really a whole lot of opportunity for replays but it did not look particularly vicious to me and it absolutely devastated him he looked in incredible pain. He had to do that hoppy rug off thing again that he does every time to ensure he can stay on the field. And he was visibly limping for the rest of the game. It limited his mobility. I thought he looked panicked at times because he didn't have that option in his arsenal anymore to take off and run. So he was forcing passes that he shouldn't. He was looking for other options that weren't there because he couldn't take off and run. It affected his play. It affected the game. And had he taken another shot, that decision may well have been taken out of Dickinson's hands because that is a serious, serious knee injury. And at this stage, I think it would be entirely irresponsible if he played this week. Fajardo should have been sat arguably weeks ago. And Brendan McGuire was on point in saying just as much in his column on Three Down Nation. And Joel Gasson, one of our other people who covers the Rough Riders, said this is the real first test of the Jeremy O'Day, Craig Dickinson era in Saskatchewan. And that is definitely the case. And right now they're failing the test because their franchise quarterback, who is realistically their only real shot of winning a Grey Cup this year on home soil, has an ailing knee that has gotten worse by the week. Now, we don't know the exact details of the injury, but you can tell that it's getting worse based on what Fajardo says. So in my mind, you got to take the prudent approach sit him down this week against Toronto and BC and for the bye week. Then you get him off his feet for, you know, almost a month to rest up that knee and see where it is for the stretch run. Because if he's not on the field, unless Mason Fine or Jake Dolagala does something unbelievably Ricky Ray-like, let's say, then they're not going to be in contention for a great cup. So they need to make sure Fajardo is healthy you know you're likely going to be in a crossover playoff spot at worst anyways, as long as you stay ahead of Edmonton because East Division has been so bad. But the Rough Riders have lost two games to East Division teams with an injured quarterback. So I think if I was a player in the locker room with the Rough Riders, I'd be questioning, well, I know Fajardo's our best chance to win, but is he actually better than Mason Fine at what Dickinson and Fajardo have kind of pegged at 80%. That was going into the touchdown Atlanta game. It was very clear that he was worse than that after the Oakman hit. And when you have your quarterback out here, not dismissing a question about his career being in jeopardy, that's all you should need to know. I understand Dickinson feels like he'd have a fight on his hands, but at some point you have to step in and be the head coach and make that decision, you know, along with the GM and O'Day as well. So I just hope, that this rising star who has been a perfect fit with Saskatchewan hasn't been damaged for the long term because he's continued to play through this knee injury. And that that's really the comment I want to dig into, Dunk. The comment that he made about, oh, well, I can't pull Cody. I'd have a fight on my hands. Again, I have a lot of respect. Just like I said last week, I have a lot of respect for Craig Dickinson. But that is literally your job. You need to be in charge of your team and that includes your biggest stars and your franchise quarterback 
in Cody Fajardo. Any player in almost any circumstance will choose to play if left to their own devices. Players play. It's what they do. You're the head coach. Be the bad guy. It doesn't matter who you upset. If it's the right decision, it's the decision that has to be made. Put on your big boy pants. Make the decision. Absolutely. It was Dave Dickinson or Mike O'Shea, and they had Zach Caleros or Bo Levi Mitchell or anybody else that was ailing with that knee injury. They would have been sat down by now. Now, those are obviously two of the best head coaches in the league, and both guys have won multiple great cups, but there would be no question, and the player would ultimately respect it as much as, you know, maybe in this instance, Dickinson feels like Fajardo would want to fight him. I don't know about Dave Dickinson on that one, because if that were true, he'd have already shipped Bo Levi Mitchell out of town last season, but he stuck yeah, but with Mitchell's him. Playing better now. Don't I know. Hey, I'm not hating. Put Jake I'm Bear in there last I'm, year. I'm saying he stuck with him and, and Mitchell's performed. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily true. I think the other Dickinson brother was guilty of a little bit of that as well, although not to the same extent. I don't think Bo Levi Mitchell was ever at a true risk of, of severely harming his, his future career with a re-injury. And to me, that's the key difference here, right? That's what you have to look at is how much worse is this knee going to get? We don't know if it was a ligament issue. Was it something that was partially torn? Was it ACL, MCL, PCL? Are any of those ligaments still intact? So to me, that's what they need to look at. And can it get worse? I'm no doctor. I don't have an idea. But Fajardo said he was going to talk with the doctor after the game at Touchdown Atlantic and assess the situation. But it's just pretty clear. I mean, for his own personal safety, that he shouldn't be in the ballgame. Now, he still played all right. But those two fourth quarter interceptions really cost his team. I don't necessarily think that was because of the knee, but it was clear throughout the game. JC and I were saying it that he was letting the ball go early on some plays and just trusting Duke Williams in a couple examples to make a play when in reality, the ball probably never should have gone there, but he feels like he has to get rid of it so early. So he doesn't risk taking a shot on the knee and he knows that he can't escape the way that he's used to doing. So in my mind, Never been a head coach before, but as a former Canadian University quarterback, if my coach saw me not being able to do the things that I'm used to do, I would hope, as much as I would have wanted to fight him too at the time at the University of Guelph, that he would have pulled me off the field, let me sit down and be better for the future. The Hamilton Tiger Cats hired recently fired Montreal Alouettes head coach Kahari Jones as a football operations consultant with head coach Orlando Steinhauer calling the hiring a, quote, no-brainer, close quote. What do you guys make of the hiring? It's a smart move by the Ticats after a dumb move from the Alouettes. Hamilton will be better, and this needs to be said right off the jump, okay? As much as Orlando Steinhauer in his career coming up was a nice guy, and I still believe he is, he needs to understand that You know, at least us in the media, we're not stupid, okay? And neither are the fans who pay their hard-earned money to come watch your games when you bring in a guy who was, what, a CFL MOP quarterback, nearly won a great cup, has been a head coach, is an offensive guru, and you don't think people are going to have questions at least about Tommy Condell's job security? Like, To be honest, I just do not like when people answer this way in terms of talking down to people. That needs to stop, Mr. Steinauer, okay? It's disrespectful to the media. It's disrespectful, more importantly, to your fans. Because everybody's going to ask the question and everybody knows that there was a relationship that was, let's say, strained between Tommy Condell and Scott Mitchell, the president, even when Condell came back, okay? And there have been a lot of people inside the building that are heating up, and I think wrongfully so, Condell's chair because of all of the turnovers for Dane Evans. Dane Evans. I had someone say to me, well, Condell can't hold on to the football or stop throwing picks for Dane Evans. So that's really the only reason why his seat has gotten cranked up. But like it or not, Steinauer, when you bring people into the building with a resume like Kari Jones and for his ability to lead men, people are going to ask you the question. Don't give us a bullshit answer. I did not. I obviously was not in attendance for the press conference in Hamilton where Steinauer addressed the hiring of Kari Jones. But I did watch it on the Ticats website, and I thought that Steinauer looked remarkably uncomfortable answering questions 
Um, that's that's my personal opinion. That's just speculation. Uh, but he did not seem to be comfortable in front of that microphone. I've seen him comfortable in front of a microphone in the past. He did not seem to be comfortable discussing this issue. And I think that we need to call a spade a spade. The Hamilton Tiger Cats offense has not been very good so far this year. Yes, part of that, of course, is the injuries they've had along the offensive line. Part of that is Dane Evans not doing enough of a good job holding on to the football. He's got eight picks. That's tied for the league lead with Nick Arbuckle. He's lost five uh, uh, fumbles. That offense has turned the ball over 20 times this year, which is a shockingly high number. That is an average of four turnovers a game, which to be honest, it's almost a miracle that they've won one of those games. They lost the turnover battle to Ottawa 5-2, yet they were able to come out on top. I did not think that Tommy Condell's play calling was strong in the second half of that win. I really liked the way in which they got Matthew Schiltz and Dane Evans on the field together. I thought that was something fresh. It was something unique. It was something that defenses in the CFL have not seen on film, but that unit is struggling to run the football. I thought they were too conservative in the second half. And we know that Kahari Jones has been a very successful offensive coordinator in this league. And he continued to have good offenses, even after adding the head coaching responsibilities to his role in Montreal. Dane Evans commented on it saying, you know, as long as I've been in this league, Montreal has been one of the top ranked offenses. So he's excited to work with Jones do I think there's a chance Jones will be the OC by the end of the year? Absolutely. Do I think it happens in the next month? No. But obviously, Steinauer, we're not stupid. We, we, we know how to connect dots. Um, and at the end of the day, this is a great hiring for his team. I just I agree with you, Dunk. I think he could have gone about discussing it a little bit better. For me, the thing with the offensive situation in, ha- in Hamilton with Tommy Condell has been a lack of year-to-year consistency in my mind because we've seen this unit with Condell at the helm be incredibly successful, be explosive, be one of the best in the league. And then we've also seen stretches like what we're seeing right now where they haven't been that at all, where they're struggling to hold on to the football, where they seem to be lacking a little bit of innovation, where defenses have figured them out. One thing you can say for Kahari Jones, and I don't know if he's necessarily always been at the very tippy top of the league in terms of offensive success is he's always been incredibly consistent year to year. You knew what you were getting from a Kahari Jones offense. They weren't going to flame out. They may not light the league on fire, but they were always going to be a consistent producer and the peaks and valleys with Condell have been far too high and far too low for my liking. I, I think hopefully Jones can come in. And if you're Steinhauer and you don't want to let go of somebody like Condell, you hope that Jones can be a stabilizing force, sort of work together with Condell. But ultimately, it's going to be too many cooks in the kitchen at some point. Either Jones is going to leave for another opportunity next year, or you're going to have to put him in Condell's place and let go of Tommy. Otherwise, it's not going to work long term. I don't think Steinhauer wants to be the bad guy and pull the trigger on something like that. That's the sense I get from him from afar. He's he's an incredibly nice guy, you know, a player's type of coach and a guy who wants to support everyone on his staff. He brings in Jones as sort of a a peace offering to those within the organization that want Condell out of there to try and institute some change. But I don't know how it's going to work going forward. If those two guys don't gel, there's got to be a plan behind the scenes. And I think one of the issues that Stein is dealing with here is being the top guy, whether he wants to admit it or not. And he won't talk about the details of their decision-making process. He's the president of football operations. So a decision like choosing Dane Evans over Jeremiah Masoli ultimately rests on his desk or at his feet or however you want to categorize it. And this is a difficult situation with admittedly a guy in Tommy Condell, who is one of his really good friends outside of football because they spent so many years together their families are very close in a situation where Condell's offense is not performing this year you know turnovers and 
and all the stuff that you guys got into all in one as the issues, but that ultimately is going to rest with Condell. So now he's dealing with having to be the guy to make the tough decisions when for years that guy was somebody else in Hamilton, you know, whether it was June Jones or Ken Austin or Sean Burke, who's now the GM of the Ottawa Red Blacks, those guys didn't necessarily play the bad guy, but they were definitive in their decisions, right? June Jones came in there right away, benched Zach Claros, whether some people liked it or not, and put Jeremiah Masoli in there, put Brandon Banks to receiver, and he became an MLP all of a sudden. Ken Austin took them to multiple Grey Cups for as much as people might not like some of his antics. Let's just leave it there. He got the job done and he made difficult decisions. And Sean Burke had a major hand in building that dominant team in 2019 that Steinauer was able to come in and lead. But we got to remember that it's much different just being a head coach compared to being the head coach and general manager. Just ask John Huffnagel what it's like to be successful, right? There's rare guys who can actually do it. Chris Jones is attempting to do it again, although he's never won a great cup as a head coach and a general manager. He's won a great cup as a head coach, at least in Edmonton. And now he's trying to get that team back there. So I think that's part of what's going on here as well is a different hierarchy in Hamilton. And I think Hodge, that's why Steinauer doesn't necessarily feel comfortable in some of these media availabilities because he's not used to dealing with these situations and being the guy that has to answer all these questions when everyone knows that he's the one ultimately that gets to say yes or no. If they didn't want Kahari Jones there, or if Steinauer in particular didn't want him there, he could have said no. You know, he might have got vetoed from above from Scott Mitchell, but Steinauer ultimately is the president of football operations, and the Tiger Cats' success from here on out is going to be based on his decision-making and also the way he can lead a team. There's no question about the latter, but I have major questions about the former. Star Rough Riders receiver Duke Williams was shown on TSN throwing a helmet at Argos defensive back Shaq Richardson before the touchdown Atlantic game got underway. Argos head coach Ryan Dinwiddie later accused Williams of spitting on Richardson twice, though the Riders denied the allegations. Head coach Craig Dickinson spoke to 620CKRM Radio in Regina and blamed Richardson for instigating the incident, though he acknowledged that Williams' helmet throw was unacceptable. What are you guys making a mess? I mean, this is just another fiasco that the Riders really did not need, right? And this this happened before the game. Uh, you guys were in the stadium. I, I don't know if you guys were able to see this or if this was noticeable from where you were at. It was during player warmups. But, but to me, first of all, this is a troubling streak. Uh, Sean Lemon accused Duke Williams of spitting on him during the West semifinal in Regina in 2021 the following week Duke Williams was accused of poking Andrew Harris in the eyes and so you know Duke has not been back from the NFL for that long he's not played that many games in Saskatchewan this is the third time he's been he's been accused of something that is completely extracurricular and ridiculous and we know that he threw the helmet at Shaq Richardson that was clear as day now what we don't know and what the CFL is currently investigating as of Tuesday afternoon, I spoke to a CFL spokesperson who said, we're still investigating. We, you know, and, and I sent a paraphrasing, of course, but essentially said, look, we have to make sure we get this right. And our, our review is very thorough, um, but we don't yet know what Shaq Richardson did or said leading up to the helmet throw. But there is absolutely nothing that could have been done or said that would justify Duke Williams throwing a helmet at Shaq Richardson's head, which just about took an ear off of Ryan Dinwiddie, uh, Richardson's head coach, who had already stepped in and was trying to corral Richardson after he had crossed the 55-yard line to the rider's side of the field. So, you know, again, we talked about the Garrett Marino incident at length last week, and obviously Cody Fajardo's knee is the number one story in Saskatchewan because that will affect the rest of this all-important Grey Cup home season in Ryderville. But this, guys, is just another piece of nonsense from Mr. Williams, and it's getting harder and harder to watch as these things and this type of behavior unfolds because it's become a pattern. It really has, and it's disappointing from a player who's supposed to be one of the biggest stars in the CFL. You wonder why Dinwiddie was so animated at the podium after the game. It, it took, I think, everyone about a, a little bit of back who was in the room. And it's because he was very nearly a casualty. He, he, he almost got that helmet right off his face when it was thrown. He was right there beside it all 
in the thick of things. And he was right to be angry. I mean, that was a nasty, nasty incident. There's no justification for ever having a helmet thrown like that in a game. That's a assault with a deadly weapon, essentially, based on how heavy and, and dangerous those things can be. And with Williams, the thing that I couldn't quite wrap my head around was all his teammates and coaches coming up to the podium after the game. Of course, we didn't get access to Duke Williams. We got access to everyone else. They all come up to the podium after the game and they say, oh, that's not something Duke would do. He'd never risk an ejection. He wouldn't spit on anyone. Well, A, he did risk an ejection. He threw a helmet. That fact is indisputable. We've seen it. So you can do away with those comments uh, immediately. And secondly, you answered these same questions about him last year. So clearly there is a pattern emerging, whether you want to admit one or not, right? If it's happened twice, perhaps the most uh, logical explanation is that Duke Williams likes to occasionally spit on people. Now, we don't know what was said. We don't know what Shaq Richardson did to to prompt this. And clearly he entered that game with some sort of vendetta against Williams based on the comments of Dinwiddie, who said that he had been spit on by Williams in a previous game as well. So this is a third separate spitting incident between the three, according to Dinwiddie. To me, it's just a mess. There needs to be some sort of supplemental discipline to Williams. He shouldn't have been allowed to play in that game after tossing that helmet. That was absolutely a ridiculous decision by the league. He needed to have been sat down for that. And I hope they come down hard because he's just going to continue this sort of behavior in the future because he wasn't punished for it in the past. He knows it gets a rise out of opponents and he's going to continue to do it. The league needs to show that this behavior will not be tolerated and come down really hard on Williams. And to be honest, from the league's perspective, they should be pissed. That storyline overtook touchdown Atlantic where there was a party in a great football game that took place. And because Williams decided to throw his helmet and allegedly spit on Shaquille Richardson a couple of times, that was overtaken. Now, do I think it diminished the impact of the event? No, but it certainly became the storyline. And Enough of the Rough Riders defending their teammates, okay, without knowing the facts. If you don't know anything, then just say no comment because you look like a complete goofball when you come up to the podium and you say, well, he wouldn't do anything to get ejected. And everyone in the country saw on TSN Williams throw his helmet at Richardson. Like, <coughs> excuse me, but what are we supposed to believe here? Now, I don't think enough of what some of these people who go up to the podium understand is that when you say things like this, people, and more specifically the fans, start to not believe what you say up there when in these situations you just show that you have no idea either for what went on or you're going to go way too far one way to protect your guy because everyone on the team, I know how it is, knew that Williams threw his helmet in pregame. Okay, if that was the other team, Saskatchewan would have been calling for that player to have been ejected. And yes, Williams should have been given the boot from that game right away for the CFL to show that everything was under control. So this needs to stop. The suspension is something that I hope comes out of it, not just a fine. Now, the CFL needs to take their time so legally they have everything properly done if they do indeed suspend Williams, because I think that's something that needs to be happen for this incident needs to be suspended for the helmet throw. And if they can find evidence of this actual alleged spitting incidents going down, they need to suspend them for those as well. Yeah. And, and I get that an accusation is not the same thing as, as proof, but in the last five years, can either of you think of any player under any circumstance being accused of spitting on another player? The answer is no. And this is now another allegation in a relatively short time span, the last calendar year, you know, there, there's there's been two players come out and said this happened. Ryan Dinwiddie said, well, actually, yeah, he, he'd been spit on before. That's almost a third accusation. So that's a very troubling streak. And we talk about honesty, Dunk. I wish the CFL had been more honest. They talked to TSN's Matthew Shinetti, who indicated, well, it broke up pretty quickly. So that's why we didn't eject him. Just be honest and be and give the honest answer, which is, Duke Williams is one of the biggest stars in the CFL. 
and we wanted him to play today for our showcase game on the East Coast because anybody with a brain cell knows that that's the real reason Duke Williams was on the field. It was not because it broke up quickly because it doesn't look if it had broken up quickly, nobody would have had a helmet thrown at their head. That's just that's just <laughs> that's just basic logic. But anyways, we'll move on. The Montreal Alouettes took 13 penalties for 193 yards and a 32-31 loss to the Edmonton Elks one week after firing Kahari Jones for the team's supposed lack of discipline. Boys, does Danny Machocha have some egg on his face? He has a full English breakfast on his face. (laughs) (laughs) This is... I, I couldn't think... Of a uh, of a more perfect storyline after you fire your head coach for discipline issues to go out there take over the sideline and have the team commit 193 yards worth of penalties. That's you know some some teams don't go off out there and have that much offense in a game as you gave up for free. Danny Machocha knows it's not it wasn't Kahari Jones' fault that the the team was undisciplined. It's the players right now who are committing these penalties and things aren't going to get better now that you've taken away a guy who is pretty popular in that locker room with a lot of those players. I was surprised, to be honest, at how strong they came out in that game. You know, in the early going, I thought they looked better than what I anticipated after the coaching change. But that late collapse against a team like Edmonton that we all know is not uh, the most talented across the board right now. And with all of those free penalties given up, and what was it? Wesley Sutton had four of them, the major PIs or something like that. We were just watching out of the the corner of our eye. Um, But if he's still on the field, how can you as Danny Machocha say, oh, I am tougher on discipline than Kahari Jones ever was when you're allowing players to take that many consecutive penalties. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, uh, I'm sure Kahari Jones was watching that game with a little bit of a smirk on his face, knowing that he'd been vindicated in some regard. There's a number of things to get to here. I'll try to hit them quickly. Okay, first of all, Machocha blames Jones for the discipline issues when all of the players in that locker room were signed to contracts by who? Machocha. We love SEO headlines, search engine optimization on the website. But if there was one headline for that game, you boys know what it would be? Machoka. Okay? Because they <laughs> choked that game away, and it was evident that it was because of the disciplinary issues, but also they couldn't get the momentum going their way. And also, how stupid do the Alouettes look for getting rid of Kahari Jones, who is a guy that you know can lead a locker room, a guy that we know, and I hate cliches, but that players want to run through the wall for. And then TSN shows what they call in the biz, the sound up of Machocha's pregame speech. And after he was done, it was about as quiet as a library in there. Okay. Like there was no energy coming out of the locker room, which is why it was surprising to me that the Alouettes built the lead that they did. And we got to remember, It wasn't against an Eastern Division team. It was a Western Division team coming from the different time zone into Montreal on a short week that is often such a difficult situation. And Edmonton found a way to come back late in the ball game. What happened the last time in Montreal when a West Division team traveled in on a short week when Kahari Jones was a head coach? Okay, the Alouettes obliterated the Rough Riders. So let that stand for the record. Yeah, to to me that 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 clip of the sound up in the locker room was the first sign of of this game not going well for the Alouettes. It was it was awkward. I felt awkward watching it and that's not a moment that should feel awkward. That is a moment that should feel triumphant and jubilant and spirited as these players are getting jacked up to go and play the game that they've prepared to play all week and that they love to play. Um, That to me did not look, and again, in my opinion, my speculation watching one clip on TSN, so take that for what it's worth, but that to me did not look like a locker room that was jacked to play for its due head coach. It looked like a locker room that was sad that its old head coach got fired. That's just my take. 
The Winnipeg Blue Bombers remain perfect this week, defeating the Calgary Stampeders to improve to 6-0 for the first time since 1960. The game was the highest rated of the week on TSN, garnering an average audience of almost 600,000 people. How long will Winnipeg continue to go undefeated? Could be a solid run for the Bombers in terms of how long. I think it could probably for a while until they just need to rest guys when they have the West Division wrapped up. That'll be a better question. I'm curious to hear what Mr. Hodge will say, but this game was great. Back and forth, came down to the wire. It looked like Bo Levi Mitchell was going to pull off something crazy when he hit Kamar Jordan down the seam there, but the ball pops loose and Demario Houston picks it off Johnny on the spot for the Blue Bombers, but it was such an entertaining game and for it to live up to the hype. And there was a decent amount of hype of it on three down nation. Let's just say, I think we did our job and hyping it up fellas in this game. It was a great one. I hate when people say, ah, you know, West division final preview. Like we have no idea where any of these teams are going to be later in the season injury wise and all that stuff. Could they face off in the West division final? Yes, it's possible. But we don't necessarily know. Let's just look at the game for what it was. Two great teams going at it toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow in a one-possession football game in a rocking IG field. Yeah, I thought it – I mean, first of all, I'll say this. It's amazing how the last two weeks have completely changed the narrative around the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Yes, they started the season 4-0. Full credit to them. And full credit to them for being 6-0. You know, it's not easy to win any games at the professional level. Winning six in a row – is a pretty incredible feat. And they haven't been 6-0 since 1960. That's that's insane. Like, that is... That's before my parents were born. Like, un- <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, but, I mean, the first four weeks of the season, we got to say, they didn't look all that impressive. They got outplayed by week one, or by, by the Ottawa Red Blacks in week one. They snuck by a couple of East Division teams. Uh, I think they easily could have lost that game in Toronto had Boris Beatty made that convert at the end of the game that goes to overtime. Who knows what happens post fourth quarter in that particular contest, but they've shown as much as they play down to their competition, maybe at times in the first month of the season, the last two weeks, they have been excellent. They still can't run the ball effectively. That's been their bread and butter since, you know, 2016 when that's this team became a perennial great cup contender and perennial playoff team for the first time. in you know, what was it? Probably 10 years close to, um, but that being said, I mean, this team has shown that they are undisputed, the number one team in the CFL. And as much as, yes, it is early to start talking about the West final, winning that game over Calgary is huge because now they have two more games against the Stamps, one at McMahon, one at IG, and provided they win one of those two games the rest of the way, they will have the tiebreaker against the team that I think has clearly been the second best in the CFL so far this season, though we have to wait and see more from the BC Lions because because of the CFL's messed up scheduling, they've only played four games, which is crazy to think that the Bombers are playing their seventh game on Friday. BC's only played four games so far. So I'm impressed with them. That said, I'm curious to see how they'll play this week against Edmonton because, again, they've played down to their competition at times. I don't want to see them play down to their competition against the Elks. I want to see them go into Commonwealth Stadium and show us that they can win by 20 points and play, bring their A game, not their B game, because we've even seen their C game at times this year. Bring your A game. doesn't matter who you're playing. Bring, bring your A game. Get a big win. I think what I've seen from the Bombers over the course of this season has been a little bit of evolution on offense and yeah the running game which has traditionally been their strength has not been there and that still needs to be fixed in my opinion i i don't understand why johnny augustine is not getting more touches in that running game based on how he's performed but from a passing standpoint they found their rhythm zach caleros with his new weapons greg ellenson Dalton Schoen has been a revelation. And then I think this past week, the addition of Carlton Agudosi was absolutely fantastic. Maybe that bigger body threat that can take you a little bit more over the top. That's an element that they haven't really had in that offense. We talked about it to start the season. This isn't a group that necessarily had big time deep playmakers, but they're incredibly consistent. And then they've been able to, rack up yards so far this season. I think Ellingson and Schoen have been two of the best receivers in the league, uh, period. 
Um, I really like that offense, especially when I saw them a few weeks ago against BC. They again showed up against Calgary, and they're going to be trouble for the rest of the season. The best thing about the Blue Bombers this year is their evolution or continued evolution, I should say, in terms of knowing how to win football games, whether they're playing that A, B, or C level, as Hodge alluded to, they know how to win and finish in the fourth quarter. We should go on to Hodges Heritage moment, but I got one more thing to say because you mentioned Carlton Agudosi, six foot six, 220 pounds, caught the two touchdown passes, which are sensational. I got a tweet from somebody, I don't remember who, Bomber fan, during the game, upset that Agudosi was playing so well because they said, oh, well, now he's just going to go to the NFL. And I thought, we are five receptions into this player's <laughs> CFL career. We are five receptions. In this player's CFL, sometimes social media is wild. And by the way, Agadosi turns 29 in February, so he's not going to the NFL. He's 28 years old. It's now time for Hodges Heritage Moment. Boys, this is one of my all-time favorite CFL memories. On this day in 2006, Milt Stiegel caught a 100-yard touchdown pass from Kevin Glenn as time expired to defeat the Edmonton football team at Commonwealth Stadium by a score of 25-22. Two defenders collided as Stiegel caught the pass, leaving a clear path to the end zone. Ricky Ray had thrown a nine-yard touchdown pass to Jason Tucker just moments earlier, all but sealing the victory. The clip of the touchdown was shown as part of the league's No Lead is Safe campaign, promoting the unpredictable nature of the CFL. Boys, if you saw this moment, I could tell from JC's reaction that he has, I would love to know what your initial reaction to it was when it happened, because it was truly shocking. I didn't see it live, I, I, or at least I don't recall seeing it live, but the clips I, I get secondhand pain as a former fan of the Edmonton Elks uh, from watching that clip. I mean, it's only in the CFL moment. When would you ever see a pass like that in any other league? It's absolutely incredible. And then just the two defenders colliding and makes you want to put your head in your hands and just weep as he, you know, trots all the way to the end zone an incredible playing an all timer, uh, in the CFL. I can remember being somewhere in the country. I don't know where it was and watching. It was Friday night football, right? Uh, I believe it was. Yes. I think it was. If I remember anyways, we could be wrong. If the fact checkers out there want to get after us on Twitter, let them do it. But I just remember as a former player thinking, okay, are there any flags on the field? And then, no, this is actually a real thing that happened. It was unbelievable. And who was on the losing end of that? Just like they were on the losing end of their debut last week. Danny Machocha. <laughs> Ouch. But one more thing before the three-minute drill. I might be misremembering this, but I believe we got the paper the next morning because I, as many people know, I grew up born and raised in Winnipeg. Winnipeg Free Press shows up on our doorstep, and the front page was an article about how the Bombers had lost in Edmonton because the touchdown catch happened after press time. I still, to this day, regret not keeping a copy of that newspaper because how funny is that? Time for the three-minute drill. Let's get it going, boys. The CFL and CFLPA agreed to further define their zero-tolerance policy regarding racial discrimination after Garrett Marino uttered racial language at Jeremiah Masoli, though no details regarding the revised policy were revealed. Does that make sense? I don't know how you can call something a zero-tolerance policy when someone's getting a slap on the wrist for saying something racial at another player. So I, I, I don't know what to make of this because they didn't tell us anything about it. Alouette's owner, Gary Stern, met with Elks president and CEO, Victor Kui, during Touchdown Atlantic, and in a deleted tweet, Kui posted a photo of their agenda, which included a bullet point reading, Vernon Adams trade. Could Adams still be dealt from Montreal to Edmonton? I think it's anything's a possibility with Chris Jones running the show, but this is just the other side of active management on social media when you get a couple of old guys in a room arm wrestling. Sometimes things slip out. <coughs> the Ticats move perennial all-star linebacker Simone Lawrence to the six-game injured list. Is that a big loss for Hamilton? It is every game that goes by, but hopefully for the Ticats, he's not out that actual length of six games. There's some reports coming out. He could be back sooner, but we'll have to see when Sammy Health gets back on the field. The assault charges against suspended St. Peter's receiver Brandon Langley have been dropped. How do we feel about that? Looking at the incident, 
I don't think he ever should have been charged with assault. I'm glad that those charges have been dropped. Jeremiah Masoli accused Garrett Marino of lying about trying to get in touch with him to apologize for his illegal hit. Who do you believe, Masoli or Marino? I believe Mazzoli wholeheartedly. I don't believe anything that comes out of Garrett Marino's mouth. Although, to be fair, nothing has come out of Garrett Marino's mouth because he won't stand in front of anyone and answer for his actions two weeks ago. Montreal acquired the rights to longtime NFL offensive lineman and medical doctor Laurent Duvernay-Tardif from the Calgary Stampeders. Will we see the doctor sign with the Alouettes anytime soon? I don't think there's any chance this move was made strictly for public relations reasons, and that's where this story will head. Andrew Harris surpassed Milt Stiegel for fourth all-time on the CFL's yards from scrimmage list, reaching 15,228 yards. He also sits just 75 rushing yards away from 10,000 in his career. What would that mark mean for his legacy? I mean, it means a tremendous amount, right? There have been very few running backs. I believe it's just four currently who running backs, not because Damon Allen as a quarterback reached 10,000 rushing yards, which is insane. But as a running back, I mean, as a Canadian, it's amazing to see Andrew Harris do these things. I ran the numbers because he passed Stiegel in all-purpose yards. I was curious to know how close he is to Milt Stiegel in touchdowns. The answer is he's still 64 touchdowns away which puts Stiegel's record in a perspective. Holy smokes. The Riders canceled practice on Tuesday after suffering an outbreak of COVID-19 that has reportedly affected five players. Is that going to hurt their chances of winning this week? I think it will. You can't lose five players, especially a team like the Riders that's so injury-riddled as they are right now, and especially... If this outbreak grows in any capacity, then I'll start to get really worried about their chances against Toronto. Deron Carter will make his debut with the Edmonton Elks on Friday after suffering a broken ankle in training camp. Chris Jones indicated the two-time CFL All-Star receiver will be used in a, quote, bunch of different ways, close quote. How do you think Carter will be employed? Jones run the show, man. I don't even want to take a guess at this. Honestly, I still think Carter could be a productive dude on offense, but I would imagine he's going to be used on defense. Football Canada and the CFLPA partnered to launch the Grassroots First Down Initiative that will introduce kids aged 4 to 8 to the sport for free in a non-contact environment. Is that a smart idea? I think it's super smart, and to me, there was something missing from this press release. So Football Canada and the Players Association are doing this? Where's the league? Hmm. Curious. The Elks are inducting Jim Jeremy, Joe Holloman, and Ed Jones into the club's wall of honor. All three won five great cups in a row during the team's dynasty in the late 70s, early 80s. You're from Edmonton, JC. Is that a good move? A fantastic move, long overdue for all three players, iconic parts of that Edmonton dynasty, and just another way that under Victor Kui, they are trying to reconnect with their fan base based on that historic legacy from the golden years of the green and gold. That's it for this edition of the Three Down Nation podcast. Thanks for listening or watching to an extended edition. We'll be back next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.